This is Teo Graham, host of The Land of the Unsolved. Today, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to offer our listeners a chance to hear an episode from one of our other podcasts, Truth and Reconciliation. We thought this would be a good opportunity because the controversy over an alleged serial killer preying on women in Baltimore, for the most part, remains unsolved. It's a harrowing tale of murder and mayhem and a thoughtful look at how the media covers both. We hope you enjoy this episode as we continue to work on a new case for you. Thank you. People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us, too, as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janice. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. Even if it's like a, a addict or a prostitute, that was someone. Today we are continuing our examination of an aspect of the criminal justice system that is often overlooked, the mistreatment of women of color. We will continue to explore the stories of several women who have suffered injustice from the hands of law enforcement. And take a critical look at how police treat African-American women and oftentimes simply ignore them. An in-depth series of episodes that will reveal a deeply flawed system through the stories of the women we're calling hidden victims. All this coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about not what police do to you, but what police don't do to you, or sometimes what they ignore. You know, it's interesting, Sean, uh, I think anyone who reads the offer right now has noticed there's something, a banner across the top yeah. of the paper. Could you talk a little bit about that and why you're doing that? Yeah, we've decided to um, uh, make it plain that we're watching what happens as far as a Detective Sean Suter is concerned. Um, so I think we're up to 232 days uh, since his murder and still no answers to who killed him or how he actually died. And, and until there is an answer, uh, we're going to continue to uh, place that banner at the top of our front page asking them the question, who killed, who murdered Detective Sean Suter? Now, just so people know, who was Sean Suter and what happened to well, him? Sean Suter is the uh, Baltimore homicide detective, a veteran Baltimore homicide detective who was who died uh, in a West Baltimore alleyway mm -hmm. uh, back in November, last November. Uh, um, he was, the, ne the very next day, the day after his death, he, he was to testify against the Gun Trace Task Force. So um, everybody, and I wrote this in my column, people, everybody from Park Heights to Roland Park believes that the police uh, ended this man's life. Um, but certainly um, this 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 narrative that he was somehow either killed himself mm -hmm. or some random fellow in a black sweatsuit with a white stripe killed him uh, 
no one is no one is buying these two uh, stories. And critical to this case, of course, is the fact that the community doesn't trust the police department to do an honest investigation. Correct? Absolutely. I mean, it, the, the, if you. The, the the police asked the FBI to come in and investigate this right. case, and the FBI said no way. Um, that tells you something, I yeah. think. Uh, and 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 I think that the uh, the communities, the gulf between the community and, and law enforcement has just continued to widen to the point where it's basically. I don't know if you you can traverse it. I mean, it it can't be. I don't know how you mend it until unless you do something like catastrophic or drastic um, as far as reform is concerned. So, Taya, five years ago you did a documentary about women who were strangled, who the cases were never solved, and a lot of that was about what we're going to be talking about with Jackie McCleary and undetermined deaths of women. Can you talk a little bit about what you you talked about in that documentary and and how it's relevant to the story we're about to hear? Certainly. Well, first let me talk about what an undetermined death is. It's a category that's used by the medical examiner when the death doesn't fit neatly into either category of either an accident or homicide. Or suicide. Or suicide. Thank you. So this category is used when the, the manner of death isn't certain. In relation to the women who we investigated together, their deaths, um, these women were poor women, women of color, women who had uh, histories of addiction or had a criminal background. And their deaths were often ruled undetermined. And we couldn't understand why, because when we looked at the evidence, when we looked at their autopsy, there was often signs of violence done to these women. And we couldn't understand why would you place this death in the undetermined category. And as a journalist, that's a question you, you ask yourself. Well, why, what is the benefit of placing someone into that category? In Baltimore City, uh, careers are made, mayors are elected on the basis of being able to get a violent crime statistic down. That's how police commissioners keep their jobs. That's how mayors keep their jobs. So by taking a potentially violent crime and sliding it into the category of undetermined, you have artificially lowered the violent crime statistics. Yeah. And Sean, you know, before we start, I want to ask you about a case that was categorized as a suicide, but people still believe, and this this was predates Sean Souter, which is Robert Clay, oh. who was one of the most influential black businessmen in Baltimore. Absolutely. And his was ruled a suicide. How do you feel about that case, and what do you think the community thinks about that case in terms of it being a suicide? Nobody believes Robert Clay killed himself. Anybody who spent any time around Robert Clay would would be probably easy to to determine that he would be one of the least likely people Mm -hmm. to kill himself. Um, When you start talking about the specific details of the case, that this right-handed man somehow shot himself with his left hand on the opposite side of his head. Right. Uh, Walking down the stairs yeah. right. of his of his Reservoir Hill right. office. Right. You know, um, it's just, it's ridiculous. So coming up next, we will talk to a family who has suffered from this ambiguity and this lack of, I guess, what we say concern about the deaths that happened in the African-American community. All this coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation.
When I first visited the home of Tierra Kelly, it was hard to discern the signs of trauma she had experienced. A young mother with a promising career who's expecting her second child. She remembers her mother Tyra as a positive influence in her life. Um, growing up, she was in and out of my life, but she lived in the home. She was like, you know, battling with addiction, but like she always tried to do good by me, make sure everything that I wanted was taken care of, never missed a meal, had great birthdays and great Christmases. Um, she was amazing to me like even with all the bad that probably the world saw her she was like the best person to me even like sometimes she would you know be in prison for a few months she would come home and always surprise me I would never know she would be home and I would just be like oh my god it's like Christmas like I missed you so much but it was like even in her absence she would call every day she would write me notes but when she starts to tell the story of how her mother died her mood changes She's still upbeat, but beneath the surface, there is a deep pain. The day that they found her body, it was kind of weird. It was like the first day of my 11th grade year. They picked me up from school early, so essentially, like, I never tell people this. My first thought was, like, something happened to my mother. It's the first week of school I haven't heard from her, but, like, I don't know what happened. So before we walked into my grandma's house... They was like, they found your mother. They didn't really want to tell me details. When we were playing in the funeral, they re- really didn't tell me much about what happened. That's because Tyra died under suspicious circumstances that remain a mystery. Her mother's case left in a sort of legal limbo because the medical examiner ruled it undetermined. When we got the death certificate, I was like, I don't even understand what an undetermined death is at that point. I was like, what does that even mean? So I went and got like articles from the paper and things like that. And I wanted to know, like, I was like, I am 16. Like, I want to know what happened. Like, she's gone now. I want to know like what happened, like how it happened. And Tierra recalls she was found in a northwest Baltimore alley. Buried under a pile of mulch, her legs wrapped in a trash bag. I read that they found her, like, behind a dumpster with her pants down and, like, her body was decomposed because it was out. I was like, oh, I was, like, so hurt because, like, you hear stuff like that on TV, you never think it's going to happen to you. We also spoke to Tyra's sister, Jackie. Jackie had a spiritual bond with her sister that was deep. My little sister was like my child. She wasn't like a sister. She always looked up to me and I always tried to take care of her. Most times she fell, she got back up, she struggled, but she tried to get clean. She says from the start, the circumstances surrounding her sister's death didn't add up. The day she went missing, I was supposed to, I left work and I thought I was on my way. And she said, well, I'm just going to wait for you up at my mother's mom. I said, oh, you got to leave because, you know what I'm saying, I got I to gotta leave. You got to leave out my house. And I was like, okay, her boyfriend went and got her. I said, well, bring it to me. I'm getting my truck washed. Meet me here. So I'm like, it's getting dark. Where is she? He said, I dropped off to you 45 minutes ago. I said, where? And he said, up in Belvedere. I was like, oh, my God. She recalls a conversation with the medical examiner who admitted that the case seemed nefarious. And, um... They said it was her body, and I wanted to see, and they wouldn't let me see. Because her body was decomposing, and they didn't want to let me see. And I was like, so what was the cause of death? From my understanding, her feet was tied with trash bags, and her pe- underwear, her pants were down to her knees. And I worked in the medical field over 10 years. Her adrenaline glands bleed out. That means strangulation. So how are you going to cause them say my sister death was undetermined just try to sweep it under the rug? But perhaps because the case was ultimately ruled undetermined, the police did nothing. And then somebody was using her checks 
and they wasn't pursuing it. I was like, well, why? I don't follow up. They're using her checks. Somebody's using her checks in the store trying to use her checks, her paychecks, I mean, her personal checks. It just says the detectives wasn't answering the phone. It was a mess. And as the case languished, doubts lingered. I was at work, and the, the pathologist called me. It was very nice. She talked to me for a long time. She said, when I heard about the, how they found your sister's body, I wanted to do the autopsy myself. She said, I did it thoroughly, and I did it again. She said, she said, no trauma to the body, but her, her adrenaline glands were asphyxiated. And then when they, when they sent, I think, I don't know, Stephen interceded, he sent out the autopsy report to uh, the, the lady, did Anna Nicole Smiths. Mm-hmm. When he said, he said, I'm sorry for your loss, but don't let this go. Your sister was murdered. For her daughter, the lack of answers has left deep-rooted psychic wounds. Yes, I had to go through therapy for many, many years. A lack of closure, she says, only made worse by the murder of her brother, which also remains unsolved. Later, my brother got murdered, and then he had a closed casket funeral, too. And I was like, in my second year of college, I was like, I, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this anymore. I was like, it's just so much. But um, even after his death, I had to start going to therapy again because I had stopped. I was like, I'm in college. I think I'm going to be okay. I got myself this far in life. No, then that still surfaced because a lot of times what I would say to him is like, our dad is gone, my mom is gone, you're the only person I have. Now he was gone. It was like, I don't have anybody. And the same goes for her Aunt Jackie, who thinks about her sister every day. It took me a couple of years to get, you know, months and months to get sleep. I couldn't sleep. I felt a spirit over top of me until one day in my sleep, I actually walked down this hall. I kept looking at these rooms, these white rooms, and I seen and she smiled at me. And it was the first night I could go to sleep. A kind of purgatory for the family. A feeling of abandonment that only heightens the pain of losing someone and perhaps never knowing why. Every day I think about my sister. Every day. What would give you that peace? to know that somebody cared enough to investigate and see what happened to her. To let me know that they cared enough to pursue an investigation at least. Even if it led to a dead end, that somebody wrote on that paper that I tried this and I tried that and I tried this. And we had no evidence to go any further with it. I want to see the pictures, I want to see it all. I want to see what they didn't see. What am I saying that you don't see here? Because if she was found, like you say, she was found, some evidence got to be somewhere. Because they're someone's family. At the end of the day, I feel like in any death murder, like, the family get feels better and gets more closure when they know, like, you tried your hardest to find someone, like, you, you have someone in custody. That makes the person feel better or the family because it, in all sense, you can't bring the person back from death. But just knowing that justice was served for that person... It's like, um, it's like the, what brings you to peace, I feel like. like That gives you a sense of, okay, now I know that this person is off the streets because they killed such and such or whatever the case may be. It's just like that's fa- somebody's family. They mean something to someone like somebody else, even if it's like a, a addict or a prostitute. That was someone. What did I do? I 
Thank you for joining us for the second part of our series, Hidden Victims, an exploration of how women of color suffer at the hands of law enforcement. We'd like to thank our guests, Tyra McClary and Jackie McClary. Please subscribe to our podcast or contact us on Facebook and Twitter. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Stephen Janis, Sean Yost, and myself for Ace Spectrum Productions. Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves. And make sure to join us for our next installment of our series, Hidden Victims. I'm Taya Graham, and thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Hidden Victims.